0: Thank you for listening. To our returning listeners, welcome back. If this is your first episode with us, we're so happy to have you join us, and we highly encourage you go back and listen to episode one to better understand the context of this story and the importance of why we're telling it. And if you value the story and message we are trying to amplify, please share this podcast with your friends, families, and communities. Gracias.
1: We have exciting news! Solo Ramos Niños will be airing on public radio in Utah starting later in February. We are very excited and very grateful for this opportunity, and we will keep everyone up to date as it gets closer. Today's episode is part one of two, focusing on the emotional, psychological, and social impacts of the raids and other traumas common among Latina immigrant people. Because of the sheer amount of information and material on this subject we chose to split the episode into two parts. Logistically, we did so to keep the episodes around 30 minutes, but more than that, learning about trauma and listening to the emotional experiences of others can bring forward our own memories and complex emotions. Taking that information in smaller doses can help us process and move forward. Throughout this podcast, we will be discussing and sharing unfiltered and sensitive stories about deportation, family separation, racism, and trauma. This episode also contains explicit language. Please take care of yourself as you see fit.
0: What are some of the feelings that you remember from that time?
2: Uh, I felt alone because, like, being an immigrant is something you don't really talk to anybody about. So I didn't, I really didn't have. I felt like I didn't have anybody to talk to about that. And with my mom, I didn't really want to like stress her out about my worries about that. So I just kept, kept to myself and just hope for the best.
0: Welcome to Solo Éramos Niños. In today's episode, we will explore the expansive ways trauma can take shape in the lives of immigrants and their families. We will take a deeper dive into trauma specific to the raid and the ways in which it impacted the lives of individuals in Cash Valley. I'm Angel Lopez.
1: And I'm Shelby Lopez.
0: Empecemos. Now, we're getting into the heart of our podcast. The stories of the children who found their world falling apart we were expected to live through it like everything was normal and never talked about that pain until now. But first let's talk about why these events still matter and why they are still being felt long after the actual raid ended. Let's talk about trauma. For a majority of this episode, I wanted to give the floor to Shelby. This is her area of study and expertise. Shelby is entering her final semester of her masters of social work through her professional and educational endeavors. She has built a strong knowledge base in trauma, specifically exploring trauma among immigrant groups. She has applied this knowledge through work with diverse clients from underinvested middle schoolers to newly arrived refugees to sexual assault survivors. Shelby has also exercised greater learning and engagement in community and policy levels. All right, Shelby. So let's dive into this heavy topic. What is trauma?
1: Okay, here we go. It can sometimes be confusing when talking about trauma because the word trauma is used to describe both the event and the result. Some practitioners and scholars then delineate trauma, the event, and trauma, the emotional, physical, spiritual results, as little t trauma and big t trauma, respectively. There are so many definitions of trauma, and every therapist and every trauma expert favors a different one. The definition I like to look to Is from Tara Brack. She says trauma is when we have encountered an out of control, frightening experience that has disconnected us from all sense of resourcefulness or safety, coping, or love. When looking at a singular event like the Swift raids in Cache Valley, it is so easy to see how that raid and the subsequent deportations were traumatic and impacted individual families in many different ways. Yet, when considering the Latine immigrant community, the raid was not the beginning or the end of the trauma that this community faces. I was recently listening to an interview with a Chicana therapist, and she unequivocally stated that all immigration is trauma. That loss of everything you know, your home, stability of community, language, and connection, she asserts is all trauma. Beyond that, there are three major periods where traumatic events and subsequent Big T trauma often occur for immigrants. This first period is called pre-flight, the time before an individual or family chooses or is forced to leave their country behind. This includes the catalyzing event or events that caused them to leave in the first place.
0: Because truly, no one leaves everything for no reason. Why did you leave your country of origin? ¿Por qué
1: because we lived in a lot of poverty and there was a lot of crime where we lived I saw my children growing up in an unhealthy environment a lot of children using drugs, alcohol and were out in the streets and I didn't want my children growing up in this environment I wanted to give them a little better of a future so they could grow and have more opportunities than I had
2: my, my dad's original plan was actually not to leave Mexico. He actually wanted me to grow up in Mexico. He wasn't ready to leave his family behind, but most of my family was already here in Utah. And my, fa- my mom wanted to try and give me a better life. She felt a life in Mexico probably wouldn't have been the life that she wants me to have. So she convinced my dad, and sure enough, they left a few months after I was baptized
3: One, I know that living conditions in in El Salvador were really horrible, Uh, especially during like the 80s. There was a civil war going on. And so my dad had multiple roles during that war. Towards the end of it, the country was like destroyed. It was completely wrecked. And then on top of that, I think the U.S. opened up their borders to El Salvador. So they essentially allowed Salvadorians to flee to the U.S. and they would give them a visa. It was a visa that they could use to work and kind of get on their feet. And so in the early 90s is when my parents came.
1: The second period is flight. So during the actual process of migration from their home country to the country where they settle, this encompasses all those things that happen on the way from Mexico or El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras or so on and so on. This is often a time when individuals are taken advantage of. They may be robbed or injured or violence may be committed against them.
0: What was your journey to this new country like? ¿Cómo fue su trayecto a este nuevo país? Pues ha sido it's been a tough life in the way from Mexico to the US it was
1: extremely stressful because you give your children to strangers not knowing if you would get them back so they could get them across the border they were two very young children I broke my foot on the journey from Mexico to the US we were with the coyote we got to the border fence and from the highest point on the border I fell and broke my foot Well, yeah, as soon as we fell, immigration caught us, had us detained, and kicked us back out to Tijuana again. I had to stay three weeks in Tijuana to heal a little bit, and here we are. My children were picked up by one of my sisters, and she watched over them and took care of them here while we made our way to them. It took almost a month.
2: It was a little bit traumatic from them. They only told me, like, some stuff. From what little I did know is they crossed using a coyote. They were with my aunt at the time, and she's she's actually in a wheelchair. So she's having a hard time trying to cross with them because they were worried about their lives. But they also felt responsible for my aunt because, you know, they wanted everybody to get over safe, obviously. And luckily, they made it through fine, despite whatever they had to go through along their journey over here
3: they definitely carry a lot of trauma and in the spanish culture right you don't really talk about it you just kind of suck it up and move on with your life until it ends up i'm assuming just taking over your life but my mom went straight to la she went through guatemala mexico and then i believe she had her aunt pick her up somewhere in either texas or somewhere in california and then she lived in pasadena and south central and that which is where i was born one of the Crazy things. Being Mexican and being Salvadorian is like the ultimate rivalry. It doesn't make sense until you hear people's stories when they're crossing the country. So, as a Salvadorian, they are treated like absolute shit crossing the border. You would think that they would help each other outright, but my mom told me that like she was robbed at gunpoint. She kind of had to like kind of wing her way through. Like, nobody would help her. Like, it was either the coyote and the other people that were crossing the border with her or nobody else, really. My father on the other end, so he went on his own. My mom used a coyote, right, to cross the border. My dad, it was originally going to be him and a group of friends. At the very last minute, his friends had got cold feet. He was dead set on leaving, so he went on his own. At the Mexico border, he crossed the river, I think it's called Rio Bravo. And so he did that by by swimming. Uh, he told me that he nearly drowned. Pan always t- tells me this to this day: is like always swim with the current, not against it, because you'll get deadly tired. What's crazy though is my mom was in California. My dad ended up somehow going east instead of west. So he went through Atlanta, Georgia. When he was going through Georgia, he was going through a predominantly white neighborhood, and it was just him and this other random guy. And so, er- like he says, like every five minutes. Someone would call the cops. And after like the third or fourth time, the cop was like, hey, like, I highly recommend you guys hide under a bridge. Just don't show your face during the daylight right now. And during the dark time, get out of the city. But with that, right, like he experienced racism early in the stages of coming to this country. And then ultimately he, had, he ended up um, in Florida uh, where he lived for a couple years. And then from Florida, he worked on the fields for a little bit. Then he ended up moving, I believe, I think he he ended up going north somewhere in Chicago. Something went down and immigration showed up and they're like, hey, we're not going to deport you, but we'll give you a one-way Greyhound ticket to anywhere that you want. And he knew that my mom was in California. And so he ended up getting a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. And then a couple years later, I was born.
1: And the last area wherein trauma can occur is post-flight or what happens once they get to the country where they are seeking safety and stability. This encompasses major events, such as the raid and deportation, as well as those compounding little things, such as not knowing the language to access the world around you, children needing to translate for their parents to ensure their family receives healthcare or finances, or the economic exploitation and poverty that often happens, especially in America.
4: We moved to New York, Um, My dad had already been here. My grandpa had been here for a while. So they were working to get a house for us so that we could move up there and, and, you know, and live. And so we get there and apparently the Bronx, New York back then was extremely rough and just expensive in general as it is now, right? And so my parents are really struggling. They hated it. They hated New York um, and they were on the cusp of moving back to the Dominican Republic because in the Dominican Republic they had their degrees, they had jobs and everything, and here they were just laborers. My dad has stories of him almost being robbed, there's stories of, of shootings in front of our house in the Bronx, drug dealers rent right on the corner, we lived on the corner house, and back then in the 90s like the bronx you don't go to the bronx right it was just super super dangerous so they're like yeah screw that let's move back like they moved here to give us a better life and they weren't seeing that in new york and then out of nowhere a dominican family in utah told them to come move to logan and give that a shot <laughs> and i guess they're like all right let's do that and here we are you know, almost 30 years later um, but my parents tell me stories and uh, you know it wasn't easy they moved here with nothing um, they slept on the floor in a basement that had, like, mice and shit. Definitely from the trenches to where they're at now. Um, my parents, they grew up with nothing, like, literally nothing. and worked their way up there, and then they had to come here and restart um, just for me and my brother. Um, and I'm super appreciative of that now. As a kid, I didn't understand that.
1: For people without documentation, it's that constant fear that at any moment, you'll lose everything again and possibly repeat the experience all over.
0: So... How does a traumatic event turn into long-lasting Big T trauma?
1: So Big T trauma, which can also often be diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, in my view, that can be captured by a quote from John Rich that states that trauma occurs when the strengths inside of you and the resources around you cannot respond to a threat. So on a neurobiological level, or your brain, that can look like a rewiring of your stress response system. So there are ancient parts of our brain that respond to threats that have been important in evolution to allow humans to exist today. These aspects of our brain scan the world around us for things that are possibly life-threatening. Those systems trigger reactions within our brain and our body that allow us to try to escape that threat. That's when you get things like fight, flight, freeze, and sometimes fawn. We're no longer living in those caveman times where the biggest threat against us is a bear or a lion. Rather, the threats all around us can look like people. It can look like laws. It can look like a life falling apart and having no control over putting it back together. So that threat against our safety, whether it's immigration law or a family member being taken away from us, rewires our brain structure. Those ancient systems in our brain scanning for threat have now become sensitized, which means they are more easily triggered. That's often a word that We hear a lot of being triggered, but in terms of trauma, it's a very real thing. It's the alarm bells going off in those brain systems saying that you are not safe, that there is a threat around us, and so our bodies become ready to fight. They become ready to flee or they freeze up, whether or not that threat is actually in the room. So because your brain has become sensitized, there are triggers all around you. Those safety measures built into your biology suddenly become a detriment to you living the rest of your life. There is so much more to understanding Big T trauma or PTSD. I'm just barely scratching the surface. There are entire books written about it, and if you would like some recommendations, I would be happy to give you some. In terms of understanding Big T trauma within the immigrant community, if we are looking back at that quote from John Rich regarding the resources inside and outside of you, when there's an abundance of those internal and external resources, it is more likely that that big event or series of traumatic events could result in resilience or the strength to move forward. However, on the other side of that, without access to those same kind of internal and external resources, These traumas can stick with us and become a part of our bodies.
0: Hmm. So what could those internal and external resources look like?
1: So let's start with external. One such of these external resources could be proximity to the traumatic event. Having your home destroyed in a natural disaster might impact you differently than if you were farther away from the epicenter of the storm. That distance creates a buffer and becomes an external resource that helps protect you a little bit more from the traumatic experience. So looking at the raid, individuals who didn't have a direct family member being detained and deported as a result of of the raid may have a little bit more of that external proximity buffer to being impacted, compared to someone who, say, their father or mother was deported. One of the most detrimental external resources are relationships. Having strong, supportive relationships around you can help buoy you up when trauma happens. So, again, looking at the raid, if a child has a strong relationship with their siblings, Their friends, their teachers, and by strong, I mean supportive, emotionally trusting, and receive support in all the ways that they need. If they have those systems around them, they may be able to move through that trauma much more easily than someone who does not. And in terms of healing, having those relationships, even after the fact, can help move that healing forward in ways that is not necessarily possible without it. Now looking at internal resources, that's when things get a little bit more gray. Things that could be considered internal resources vary widely and depend a lot on the person and their experiences. Some examples of internal resources could include self-confidence, or a trust in your ability to manage difficult situations, or the ability to deeply connect with your mind and body or even the knowledge that you are loved. However, if an individual has experienced trauma multiple times before, say, the event of the raid, then their internal resources may be depleted, allowing that trauma to then compound genetic dispositions and even generational dispositions, which I'll touch on more later can also create a lack of internal resources that may be impacted when a traumatic event occurs. All in all, in considering internal and external resources, it honestly is just individual. Every person has a different history and different experiences that all lend themselves to whether or not trauma becomes a part of us.
0: So this all seems pretty complicated. Looking at how it impacts the individual, how does this all show up in people's lives?
1: So when trauma has become a part of our souls, our bodies, and our brains, this can result in a higher likelihood of health conditions. It can impact our relationships with our loved ones, our potential relationships, and even our relationship with ourself and the environment around us. One of the hallmarks of trauma is an incessant fear of being unsafe. Because that traumatic event was uncontrollable and beyond our scope of processing, like I talked about earlier, the neurobiological reaction is to prioritize survival. So that ancient part of our brain can be continually emboldened and fed by the internalization of trauma and the continuation of that trauma. This can look like hypervigilance, which is constantly looking around for danger, constantly waiting for something to happen, that would threaten or hurt you or those you care for. So your body is never truly at rest with hypervigilance because it is always trying to ensure survival. It can also look like disassociation or numbing, a distance your brain may put between you and the frightening realities all around you by disconnecting emotionally from relationships, internal connection, or even your sense of self. Now with this understanding... Even if a person has big T trauma or PTSD, there is always an opportunity for work and healing that can take place in order for that person to be able to build those resources and continue forward in resilience. This healing does not often happen in a single generation. An unhealed trauma in one generation can move into the next and the next and the next in something called intergenerational trauma. Parents and grandparents can pass down their trauma to their niños, or historical generational trauma can be given and manifest in many different ways.
3: And so, like, me being naive, maybe it's the growing up in Utah part of me or whatnot, but, like, I honestly, again, I honestly thought racism was kind of slightly dead over to an extent, but my dad always warned me, like, you need to be very, 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 very careful because, this country will show you one face, but behind your back, they will be completely different. And again, uh, and I think it's, it just attributes back to him just kind of experiencing racism at, the very, at a very early stage. Trauma can be
1: passed down through modeled behaviors from the parent or caregiver to their child. We as humans are extremely relational and social. We have a process in our brain called mirror neurons that help us to respond to the actions and moods of other people and they play a very large part in socialization. For instance, when you're a baby, you may see your parents smiling down at you. Those mirror neurons start to fire and you as a baby smile back. That facial expression is then associated with a sense of joy and safety. In turn, parents who have experienced trauma may, through their behaviors, inadvertently teach their children those same fears and those same traumas. As a very benign example, perhaps you have an individual who was bitten by a dog when they were younger. That dog bite was an intense and traumatic moment for them and may have resulted in bodily injuries. Ever since that dog bite, that person may harbor an intense fear of dogs their child has not necessarily experienced that same trauma, but their mirror neurons may pick up every time the parent walks past a dog and they see that their parent tenses up, or maybe they walk faster or hold the child's hand a little tighter. So through those mirror neurons, the child picks up the danger, and without intending to ever do so, the parent may have just passed on that trauma. Or, as we heard earlier, a parent who almost drowned crossing the border will vehemently teach their child to always swim with the current. Or a parent who experienced racism will teach their child to be very, very careful.
0: So, focusing this back on the immigrant families, what does this all look like within my community?
1: So, looking at intergenerational trauma with immigrant families... Perhaps the parent, due to their status and their experiences in migrating to this country, may have an inherent fear of institutions or the criminal justice system or criminal justice authorities. Then, perhaps consciously or unconsciously, that child sees that fear in their parent and takes on their parent's trauma. It then becomes their own. There is also some evidence regarding epigenetics in which a catastrophic trauma can be passed down through the DNA. This research on epigenetics is still developing, but it was originally tracked in a study regarding the children of Holocaust survivors. So in that same lens, when talking about the Latine community, those ancestral experiences of colonization and slavery and genocide may very well be written in La Gente's DNA.
0: Through the many interviews and conversations that we've had for this podcast, we've been able to gain an understanding that while trauma can be intergenerational, so can resilience. While the pain of the ancestors can be our pain, so may the strength of our ancestors be our strength. So Shelby, what does healing this trauma look like?
1: Trauma on an individual, community, and historical level can be healed through purposeful work. Most often, in the context of my work, social work, healing is often expected to look like talk therapy. This model, however, does not always work for undocumented immigrant families and individuals. Beyond the financial inaccessibility therapy typically poses, many therapists may not have the important experience of being linguistically or culturally bilingual.
0: So... Building off of what Shelby just said, for some undocumented persons, fear regarding documentation status may undermine the kind of vulnerability on which talk therapy is based. So no matter what the therapist may say, there is little to no basis of safety and trust to build on. However, Westernized talk therapy is not the only pathway to healing. It is imperative we give breath and space to people practicing culturally based healing work. That work looks different in different cultures. I know it's the tendency of people within the United States to homogenize the Latino experience. When in reality, each country, each ethnicity, each indigenous heritage within these countries is different and carries practices that can support its own people. For people who come from a more community-based culture, individual talk therapy can feel inflexible. I think every person should explore their therapeutic options and just like so many first-generation americans find the mix of home and heritage that works best for us
1: absolutely i think a lot about something that was said in a webinar i attended about cultural practices in conjunction with therapy one of the presenters was an indigenous latina therapist she was talking about cultural practices and their relevance when she mentioned how so much within Westernized mental health and healing is focused on, oh, is it evidence-based? Do you have the numbers and the data to back up whether or not this practice is efficacious? And she said something that was so wonderful and sticks with me to today. She said, how do you know if our practices are evidence-based? The evidence is that we are still here.
0: That is an incredible amount of information to unpack and like Shelby mentioned, we are just scratching the surface. So as you digest this information, as you reflect, as you think about how trauma maybe impacted your own life, we encourage you to take the space that you need and take the time that you need. You just gotta realize that everybody's gonna be on your tail from five o'clock until the day you die. Next time on Solo Éramos Niños.
1: It was extremely difficult for my children, especially my two younger children. It was something extremely traumatic, very difficult, because they were very young. And they were both present at the time they arrested him. They had to witness that. And after that, I had to work up to 14 hours a day to sustain my family. That was the most complicated part, leaving my children outside of the school when it was very cold, just so I could go find sustenance for them and maintain my home and family.
0: In part two of episode three, we will continue to follow the stories of three individuals who, despite all that they've been through, are still here. Hasta la proxima.
1: Featured audio clips sharing stories of migration are from original interviews with Gloria, Jonathan, John, and Fran. We thank you for your trust. By seven o'clock tonight, we'll be out of the country and you'll never see us again. Solo Eramos Niños was written, produced, and edited by Angel Lopez and Shelby Lopez. Music by Chris Illig. Cover art by Alexis Rausch. Keep up with this story and others like it by subscribing to Solo Eramos Niños wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review and follow along with us on Instagram at Solo Ramos Pod.